Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. I'm Carrie Miller, and tonight you're hearing Indivisible from Minnesota Public Radio here in St. Paul, Minnesota. This is a collaboration between WNYC in New York and Minnesota Public Radio. Each Thursday, I'm examining what it means to be an American in a time of political upheaval and polarization, the ideal and the reality of American identity and where they meet. Tonight, so what if fake news abounds on Facebook? What does it really matter if the truth has become so slippery it's hard to pin down? Politicians have played with the truth from the very beginning. Why should anyone but journalists really care? Well, the answer, which you probably already know, democracy needs broad consensus. And consensus depends on facts, true facts that many of us agree on. Here's what I mean. President Trump often talks about the number of people coming over the southern border between the U.S. and Mexico. Listen to this. We're in the middle of a crisis on our southern border. The unprecedented surge of illegal migrants from Central America is harming both Mexico and the United States. And I believe the steps we will take starting right now, will improve the safety in both of our countries. Going to be very, very good for Mexico. A nation without borders is not a nation. Now here are the facts. Net migration between the U.S. and Mexico has been at zero or close to it since the Great Recession. More people are going back to Mexico than are coming here. Now, President Trump is right when he says that people are still coming into this country without legal documents, but as many as 40 percent are here because they overstayed their visas. That's a true fact. They flew in often and overstayed their visa. And many of the other undocumented people have been inside the United States for years. So what would happen if we all agreed on those facts Wouldn't that determine how we debate illegal immigration and what we decide to do about it? We might hear less about a wall between the U.S. and Mexico. We might think differently and more deeply about what secure our borders really means. And that's why democracy and how we identify with one another needs broad consensus and true facts. As our guests join us, I'd like you to think about this tonight. If you often doubt the facts that you read, hear, or see from the mainstream press, tell me what actually inspires that doubt. How often do you push yourself out of your comfort zone to read or listen to news that is contrary to what you think you already know? So if you often doubt the facts in the mainstream media, I want to know what inspires that doubt. And how often, be honest now, You actually push yourself out of your comfort zone to read or listen to news that is contrary to what you believe. Here's the phone number, 844-745-8255. 
844-745-8255. It's 844-745-TALK. And you can find me on Twitter, at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Use the hashtag Indivisible Radio. Our guest tonight, James Shepard, is a social psychologist at the University of Florida. He researches information avoidance. We're going to explain what that is. He's with us tonight from Gainesville, Florida. And James Shepard, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. I'm delighted to be here. Hurry Kondabulu is with us. He's a writer, satirist, and stand-up comedian. His most recent comedy album is called Mainstream American Comic, and he's with us from WNYC in New York. And Hurry, welcome. It's good to have you on the show as well. Uh, a pleasure to be here and to be called a satirist. That is legitimizing. <laughs> All right. Uh, James, suddenly everybody is talking about fake news, and, and, and I want to be clear. This show is not about what is fake it's about what happens when we avoid real news and real facts. I want to ask you, is there something unique about the awareness that we have at this moment about inaccurate information? What's happening now around this? Wow, that's a, that's, that's a big question. There, let's think about that. Uh, I'm not sure that there's so much happening now is I think we're becoming aware of the um, – we're just much more focused on it now than I think we were in, in the past. I mean we avoid information all the time. Perhaps because of Trump, it becomes more of an issue because of it's focused on so much fact and there's so much obvious avoidance uh, that we perhaps didn't see so much in the past. So, so we've had – I mean fake news is not new, right? Uh, I don't believe so, no. Okay. But are you saying that we are in a moment where we might be doubled down on the idea of information avoidance, and we're going to explain what that is, but that more of us are actually practicing it? Uh, I'm not sure I would say that it's more now in the past. I mean, it's always been there. We may be more aware of it than in the past, but we've always been in the position where we're selective of the kind of information we expose ourselves to. Okay, so and that's we- been shown... Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, so let's explain what that is. Forgive me for interrupting, but but let's talk about what information avoidance is and why it matters that we do it. Uh, well, it's pretty much what you would think. Information avoidance is the uh, the decision to avoid information that we would rather not have. And it's it uh, may be temporary. We may be d- delaying it just until we have the resources to deal with it. It may be permanent. Uh, it may be non-conscious. Sometimes it's uh, we avoid Negative information, sometimes we avoid positive information, but for the most part, we're avoiding, uh, we think about the negative sides of it. And we have research that shows us that the way people might, let's say, go online and look at a newspaper site or something, I mean, we actually know that people will pick and choose some of the stories and maybe spend more time on one story or the other because they are trying to avoid, perhaps, information that doesn't fit with what they think we know. Yes? Oh, yes. There's definitely evidence on this. And again, this uh, we've known this for many years. Most of the research has been done in the laboratory, but there have been some uh, clever research by some Belgium researchers who've looked at uh, uh, the reading patterns of people on the Internet following uh, the outcome of a particular sports event. People are more likely, for example, to read about their sports team after their team wins than after their team loses. The laboratory studies have looked at uh, political outcomes and, and our tendency to seek out information which is consistent with our beliefs and our prior behaviors and our attitudes and to avoid information that's inconsistent. 
some of this research, I should say, comes from Chartbeat and Sonia Song, who I talked to this week before the show, who, who found that political leanings often determine what you're going to choose to read at a news site and, again, how long you'll spend on that article. Are we aware, do you think, James, that we're doing this? Um, I'm not sure that we are. I mean, some, much of this avoidance can be uh, non-conscious, that we, it happens kind of below that awareness. We're flipping through a newspaper and we see just enough of a headline to say, oh, I don't want to read that article. I'll move on. Then we see another article that's more in line with our views and we'll read it much more closely. Okay. So, Hurry, um, I want to turn to you now. You're a sharp observer of American culture and politics. Does this moment, I mean, conspiracy theorists have been out there for a long time. Does this moment feel different to you as an observer? Yeah, I mean, it definitely feels different because, you know, p- people do this. You know, they avoid information, they spin things in their favor. But, like, you have a president who, like, seems, like, at least by the press, seems to be universally or, or, or uh, the, the, reviled is a strong word, but there's a great deal of disagreement about what the truth is, right? And, Usually politicians will spin something, right, and, and it'll, it'll come out in, 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 in a way to make them look, uh, look good. But this, a lot of times what we're seeing is instead of spinning it, it just moves 180 degrees and we're saying that is true. <laughs> um, and that is something that's you know, hard to deal with. And I think also the conspiracy theorists, I think a lot of it comes from the history of this country. You know, we were lied to about what, you know, what the government has done in the past and we get documented. We find about, found it. We find out about COINTELPRO. We, we, we question how the media has been used for propaganda previously. Things have been prov- proven to be false information. And so that creates a doubt. And I think that opens uh, the world up to, to conspiracy theory because, like, we haven't had much faith in the past. I, I'm really glad you used the word spin because, James, again, political spin has been around for a really long time, and it's partly the job of journalists to know it when they hear it and push facts up against the political spin. So, so this, is a, this is a country that should be well-versed in what it means to be spun and understand how that works in, in our political class. And yet, do you agree with what Hurry is saying, that, that there is something different going on here because perhaps of the way the president is using this information? Oh, absolutely. It's, uh, it's amazing. It's like, how did he just do that? How did we get here? Uh, there's definitely uh, something else going on, and it could be that Trump is just a master of spinning things and uh, flipping things around at the 180-degree comet. Uh, and so that we're all, all our heads are spinning. We're not quite sure what to make of this. Call here about that from Scott in Columbus, Ohio. Hi, Scott. What's on your mind? What are you thinking about? Hi. Uh, I'm thinking about um, that the mainstream media often does say things that aren't true and then insists that those are facts. But the truth is that there's a huge spin on it or or terminology is um, is used in a way that puts a spin on it great example would be um, during the campaign when we talked about the countries that uh, might uh, have a, a problem with uh, terrorism, we called them that, countries that have a high degree of terrorism or, or that are on a list. But it was only after Trump was elected that they be, and, and the ban, the so-called ban came into effect, that they became Muslim-majority countries that are under a ban, or sometimes temporary ban, that was switched in and out. 
a week ago on NPR, I heard Ari Shapiro definitely go in the second hour of the program from saying Muslim-majority countries, uh, temporary ban, to saying, so what do you think about this ban on Muslim, mm-hmm. on Muslims? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I see this happen all the time, and, I, and I, what bothers me the most about it isn't that it happens, because I read the New York Times, I read the Washington Post almost every day, and I'm a conservative. What bothers me is the hubris and the sense of, of oh, the little people out there, they don't understand the facts. Well, we hear the spin, and we, we, we recognize spin when we hear it, and we all hear right. it from the mainstream journalists all the time. Scott, good call and a lot there. And hurry, I'm, I, I want to I say to you that I hear Scott saying language really matters, and I think that is absolutely true in the, in the heightened kind of atmosphere particularly news atmosphere that we are living in. What, what, what would you, what do you think about that? Language absolutely matters, but we have to remember this is also done by the government, right? Every time the, uh, you know, in the past the, the phrase Islamic terrorism has happened or what gets called terrorism, you know, this is a, you know, what's unrest, what's terrorism, you know, what is a militia and what's a terrorist organization, right? That's something that is not only the media, it's also how the government replies to it. So I think fair enough to, to your point, like it need, it, we have to actually be critical of the language we use regardless of who it is. But the media has power and obviously the president and the people that are sent to speak, by, uh, you know, uh, on behalf of the president have power. And, and you know, we have to be questioning both. James Laurie on Twitter wants to know, can you address information avoidance versus selecting facts? Is there a difference? Uh, there is a difference, and there are a variety of reasons why we might come to believe something or particularly something that uh, is challenged by the facts. And uh, one way we do it is, uh, well, we can avoid information that we don't want to see or don't want to hear, that we find some way untasteful to us. But it's also the case that we have selective memory for things <laughs> and incomplete memory for events in the past. Okay, what does that and mean? Well, uh, here's a good example, uh, and this is what I often give to my students is I'm talking about truisms that we have, like say that you might believe that blondes have more fun. And I say, well, how do you believe that? So, well, I look at all the blondes. Look how much fun they're having. <laughs> well, you're only looking at a part of the information. There's so much more. Have you, what about all those blondes you know that aren't having fun? What about brunettes? And unless you have all the information, you're really in a poor position to make a judgment about that. But we often operate – on that uh, limited selective memory. Uh, Steph says on Twitter, very passionate about this topic, starting an MS for science outreach. One big problem is inaccessibility, opacity of primary sources. James, is that true, that it is very difficult for people to get back to the source to discover the true fact? Uh, Well, The sources are easy to get at in the sense that uh, uh, researchers like me publish all our stuff in easily accessible journals, at least if you can get to the libraries. Now, uh, the publishing companies often charge to get access to articles, but if you can get to a university library, you can get them. Now, the uh, opaqueness of it, I I certainly understand that, that uh, most of us write research for each other. We're not writing for the public, and I will agree that it it can be tedious and hard to uh, get through those articles. You're listening to Indivisible tonight. I talk about identity, by the way, on Thursday nights. And tonight we're talking about the consequences of fake news, not 
fake news itself. There's been a lot of discussion and a lot of conversation about that. I want to talk tonight about what it means, what the ripple effect of so much fake news actually means, because democracy needs broad consensus. Consensus depends on facts, true facts that we can agree on, and policy flows from those true facts. So as our guests join us tonight and talk to us about this and give us some insight on it, I want to know from you, if you often doubt the facts that you read, you hear, or you see from the mainstream media, tell me what actually inspires that doubt. How often, here's the key, do you push yourself out of your comfort zone to read or listen to news that's contrary to what you believe? Phone number 844-745-8255. 844-745-TALK. Phone lines are really busy. If you get a busy signal, call us back. You can find me on Twitter, at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Use the hashtag Indivisible Radio. Hurry, curious about what we're really talking about here is confirmation bias, right? We're looking for information that, that kind of points out or fulfills what we think we already know. What do you observe about your own confirmation bias? And how do you get yourself out of that to write the you know, do the political podcast you do and write the write the bits that you do. I mean, I, I feel like when we find information that doesn't agree with us, it, it not only affects how we uh, take in a subject, but it also we question ourselves. What have I been thinking the whole time? Uh, what have my friends been thinking? Are they wrong? Are we all wrong? Have we been doing the wrong thing? And And you can just turn the other way and be like, well, I'm not paying attention to it, so everything's fine. I mean, it's hard to be a killjoy and to bring things up. And it's also hard to be put in the position where you have the information. Information is frightening. Ignorance is bliss. And unfortunately, I think we actually apply it to ourselves. I mean, I – when I read something, I think critical reading is not taught well. We're so worried about these standardized exams. You need to teach your population how to read critically, not just – how to read, how to read critically. Is this claim true? There's a fact here. Where, where is that fact being cited? We have access to information. The internet isn't perfect, but at least you're able to be like, is that true? Or does anybody have another opinion on this? And I can Google it. And sure, I think you know, there's all these incredible uh, articles that have been written, unfortunately, because of JSTOR and various things where you have to pay for access, like that restricts uh, how much uh, the population gets, but still there's enough out there where certain basic things can at least be questioned. Um, and for, I mean, I think that's the biggest thing. We're not being critical when we read. And I, I certainly can, can be accused of it as well. You know, uh, Nobody wants to be made uncomfortable and, though, and that, that discomfort that causes growth. I think that's a really good point. I love what you're saying about the critical thinking skills. We'll talk about that. But we're also talking about this larger idea of what this means to building consensus, building cohesiveness as a democracy. This is Indivisible. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, the New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. 
So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. I'm Carrie Miller and Indivisible coming to you tonight from Minnesota Public Radio here in St. Paul, Minnesota. We're talking about uh, the fact that fake news abounds in a lot of places. You know, there's been a big discussion about what Facebook is going to do about it. I want to know this tonight with from our guests and from you about what you think the effect of fake news is on democracy. I mean, it's meaningful that we can all agree on facts and then start to debate with a lot of different views about the policy that's going to flow from those facts. So I'm asking you tonight whether you push yourself out of your comfort zone to read or listen to things that are contrary to what you believe. Do you think that fake news is somehow damaging to our democracy. I think we're making the case for that, but I'd love to hear what you think about it. 844-745-8255 and uh, at Carrie NPR on hashtag Indivisible Radio. James Shepard is with us. He's a social psychologist from the University of Florida. And Hurry Kondabolu is a writer, stand-up comedian. Most recent comedy album is called Mainstream American Comic. Let me go to the phones here to Lannon in New York City. Hi, thanks for waiting. Hi, no problem. What are you thinking um, about this? Honestly, what's really kind of hitting home for me the most is what you were saying earlier about uh, what people don't trust, why don't they trust? Um, because I know for me, one of the biggest things that's always in my mind anytime I'm reading, especially something political, but even normal news is always uh, related to what details have been omitted. Mm-hmm. Um, you can twist a lot without ever actually lying. And I, oh my God, I actually, for example, I remember a story I read years ago. Um, this was a point when I would still uh, get the New York uh, Daily News and the Post together because I had a job where I had time to do both crossword puzzles. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> and... Um, I remember uh, reading one newspaper, and it was talking about an officer-involved shooting where the officer had killed this family's pet dog. And, you know, oh, no, that's terrible, that's horrible. And then I read the other newspaper, and they gave more information and were mentioned that the dog had attacked the officer and his partner and talked about how many stitches the two officers had to receive afterwards. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, clearly those are two very different stories just based on the amount of information given. And I know that that's something that always makes me a little leery, especially with there's been so much value placed on uh, news that is shocking. Uh, Thanks very much, Landon, for the call. Uh, So, James, I want to come back to what she said about omission. And she said the stories can be twisted by what is omitted I'm thinking about what Hurry said about critical thinking skills. Can you can you deduce with critical thinking skills what isn't in the story? And, and does that end up, do you think, being important to the way you perceive the information? Uh, I think it's incredibly difficult to figure out what's missing. I mean, we know what we know. We don't know what we don't know. And <laughs> right. uh, to try to 
try to figure out what's piece it together, what's uh, what's out of the story is very very difficult. And the caller had the point of being able to double check against the second newspaper and. And that helped. But I know so many court cases. There was the McDonald's case several years ago where someone spilled uh, hot coffee in their lap and they sued and got this huge settlement. And most people were outraged, but there was so much more to that story of why uh, McDonald's lost that case. But if you only hear part of the news, then it just seems outrageous. Colin says uh, on Twitter, I think part of this whole fake news debacle is the long-growing trend of people not understanding the difference between reporting and punditry. You know, Hurry, I, I think that might be true that, you know, for much of the day, and I, I think cable news has to take some responsibility for this, for much of the day, it might be straight ahead reporting. And then you get into the opinion. And then maybe you get into, I don't know, you switch over to Comedy Central, and then you've got satire, but there's some real news mixed into that. I think it's more confusing than than I would imagine. Also, information is boring. It's supposed to be boring. Data is boring. No, yeah. no disrespect, James. But like, if you if you actually have to, you know, people think about school. This feels like school, but yeah, that's what school trained you for. Hopefully, like to be a critical thinking person. So if you can just state opinions without any real sources, and it goes back and forth. There's a reason why, like these political, uh, you know radio shows have lasted this long. People just like to hear other people yell. They like conflict and not just a, you know, interesting uh, discussion. And also, like, people are going to click things because it's clickbait because they have these incredible headlines. And the thing is, if that article ends up being too informative or like has tons of data and information and, and is also something you disagree with, you're not going to click again. And that website loses money. So there is an interest here. Like both cable news, they make money of what they omit. They make money on, on how they're going to get people in the door. They're, you know, a website's going to make money when you click regardless of if, whether it's true or not. I mean that, that kind of you know, lack of uh, respect for, for, for information and for democracy leads to you know, this fake news being spread. It, it's, it's actually uh, profitable. Yeah, James, the data being boring, notwithstanding, not to not to some people, <laughs> but I, but I think that's true. It is very hard to communicate numbers that will stick. Hurry is right that if you can put it in kind of a, a, a vociferous kind of opinion laden way, that tends to be the kind of information that is stickier than just a news article that has some numbers in it that that isn't presented in a certain way. Oh, that's absolutely the case. I mean, there's certainly we're much more responsive to sound bites. And the bottom line is that much of research, much of life is far more complicated. So when we do research, we get findings that show something, but there's always some messiness in it. And that's just the way science works. But the messiness is boring. It's confusing. So it's quite tempting to, to cut it out. Now, scientists don't get to do that, but I can understand why journalists might, because it's just confusing. Call here from. I mean, I'll, yeah, go ahead, hurry. Sorry. Yeah. Well, I just also like a lot of these cable news uh, places with all their money are cutting, have cut their budgets for investigative reporting. I mean, that's happened for years. There's very few in guess, investigative reporters who are really, you know, going to scenes in other countries to get information. Like that was the backbone of news, and if that's going to, I mean, that says a lot about what we value. Call here from Mary in Chicago. Hi, Mary. You're on Indivisible. Hi, how you Hi. doing? Doing good. What are you thinking about this? 
Well, um, one of your sex problems, and that perpetuates the whole tolerance of fake news because we stick to one lane of a complex problem, and maybe our lane isn't completely incorrect, but we have no tolerance for another lane of the same problem that may, you know, contradict our lane. So instead of like crossing across like a multi-lane highway, we get stuck. Mm-hmm. And I find this is really true both for the left and right. So if you think about like gun violence in Chicago, you know, you have one lane, which is about police brutality and corruption. And that's true, but that's incomplete. And all the activism goes towards that and feeds the desire to only read news about that. Then you have the NRA and they're, you know, absolutely nonsensical and, um, uh, hypocritical, or most people don't even know what their their policies are, and that contributes to straw purchases and guns on the street. And then you have poverty and isolation and disparity, and that is another lane. And so what I find is that whenever an incident happens, let's say a young man gets shot by a police officer, everybody who has a particular lane goes for that one explanation. And the reason why is it's great to have a bad guy, but most problems is not just one bad guy. Those are the rarities or the outliers, and most problems are a complex stew of multiple factors. Mary, this, and I, I've, this yeah. is like the, the perfect example because, as you know, trying then to decide what to do about the gun violence in Chicago. And by the way, as you know, we've been hearing a lot about it from President Trump. If if you cannot agree on, you know, the the facts, how do you actually debate the policy and get to a solution? Well, and I think even that the facts is, is, is an essential part of it. But then there's also the intolerance of having multiple facts, right? So I've, in a lot of conversations I have, and I care deeply, passionately, I work in the field around gun violence, and I find that people who I agree with aren't able to discuss with me sort of multiple sides to the one story. So that I don't think is necessarily the same thing as fake news, but I think it's what drives us, and I think it's what clouds our judgment when we're, you know, we talk about critical thinking skills. Um, you know, there's something that comes before fake news, which is not employing them to look at the complexity. Right. So, yeah, you, 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 the most problems we're trying to solve are going to have more complexity and more complex solutions. And unfortunately, I think we get stuck too much looking for one bad guy. And again, I think this happens on the left and the right. We want to have one person, one um, issue, one source of the problem, and then we can feel like we can solve it when most problems going to take more than, you know, a six-month turnaround time that a venture capitalist looks at. Mary, I'm really glad for the call and glad you caught the show. Thanks much. want to go to Michaela in Raleigh, North Carolina. Hi, Michaela. What are you thinking about on this? The thing that I've really been thinking about with, with fake news and in relation to our democracy is the effect of the over oversaturation of news information. Mm-hmm. For me, I mean, I have some news sources that I do trust, and I, I actually do try to seek out information that might not agree with my opinion. A lot of times I find that difficult because things writing style for differing opinions I oftentimes find off-putting. But the oversaturation, I feel like we have so many news stories and having to sift through what is real and what's not 
I, I'd be interested in your guest's opinion on that. Right. Thanks so much for the call, Michaela. Uh, James, what would you say about the, the saturation she's talking about? Uh, yes, there's certainly a lot of information to try to shift through here. She made another point. I'm trying to remember what it was that uh, that, that I wanted to comment on, and it's left me. But, uh, yes, I, I certainly uh, understand that problem. Uh, and, Hurry, I, I want to come to you on context because I've been reading some of or watching some of your comedy bits on YouTube. And the way you do this, you are you are deliberately, as you kind of build through these bits, leaving out important context until you're getting to kind of the payoff moment where you're putting context back in. Does that make sense to you that I'm seeing it like that? Yeah, I mean, that's what comedy is. (laughs) (laughs) You have to you have to not give all the information away because there is no longer a surprise. And that's also why comedy should not be your major news source. Um, Agreed. Uh, I I wanted to play a part of a bit that you do on the coming years when white Americans will be in the minority in the country. And I think this is a really funny example of where misinformation meets essential context. Do do you want to say anything about this bit before we hear it? It's really good. (laughs) It is. I agree. All right, let's listen. I hear about the year 2042 all the time on the news. 2042, for those of you who don't know, 2042 apparently, according to census figures, is the year that white people will be the minority in this country, right? White people will be 49% in 2042. And I don't know if there are people in this audience that are upset by this, but don't worry, white people. You were the minority when you came to this country. (laughs) Things seem to have worked out for you, right? But here's the bigger point. Here's the more important point. 49% doesn't make you the minority, right? That's not how math works, right? 49% white only makes you the minority if you think the other 51% are exactly the same. That only works if you think, well, it's 49% white people and 51% you people. That's the only way. (laughs) There's some true facts in there, right? I mean, you are kind of delivering news. What can you say about that? I mean, certainly, you know, there there's some I took some license, right? Like the, the year 2042, there have been many numbers given. I chose okay. 2042, you know, because Jackie Robinson's number was 42 and it sounded good. You know, there's also 2043, 2048, depends on which source. Also, you know, there, there's a difference between a majority and a plurality and a minority. And I just kind of threw that out the window. But, you know, as an artist, I think sometimes this is my friend Nato Green, the the organizer and comedian, said this. Sometimes we alter truth to bring out greater truths. Now, as a as a performer, I think that's acceptable as a as a politician. That is a lie. That is that is not how this works. You don't you don't get to just uh, put a story out there because it benefits you. Well, you know, there was a an attack in in Sweden and there was this attack in Bowling Green. You can't like that is not. Uh, hypothetical. You know, I can do hypotheticals. I can imagine. I can test an audience. That's a different game. But if there's anything we've learned, Hurry, it is that there's and we've and we've known this, that there's a lot of performance in politics. Maybe there's more performance in politics than we ever knew. Right. Oh, yeah. Comedians are much more honest. At least we we tell you we want we want you to laugh. I mean, it's clear what our intentions are. I don't always know what the in- intentions of my uh, my representatives are. Let me grab a call here from Kelly in Maryland. Hi, Kelly. How are you? Hi. How are you? Doing good. What are you thinking uh, about? Yeah, I'm. Uh, so I'm talking about kind of my personal bias. So, you know, I've, I live in Maryland. I live in an area where I don't know 
coal workers and steel workers who are losing their jobs, but I'm, I tend to be around people who are who care about the environment. So when I see environmental regulations pass, I usually see that as a win, and I kind of move on. And while I'm aware that coal and steel jobs are starting to fade out, mm-hmm. there's a real disconnect with me because I don't actually know anybody who is losing their jobs. Yeah. Um, and I really feel like the media needs to take the responsibility to really bring that voice of those people to prime time to reach the people on the coast. How, how does that work? I, I mean, you're saying that the media is not doing a good enough job of bringing you voices of people that are affected by these, you know, for example, these regulations on coal. Right. I mean, I feel like environmental environmentalists and environmental activists are usually well-funded and have a loud voice. I feel like energy companies are well-funded and have a loud voice. But the people who are suffering from either industries changes, they don't have a real voice that you hear on primetime television. Um, and I, like, so people like me, really, I kind of move on when I'm like, okay, I care about the environment, and that's because that's what I think is important. And uh, I, this election's really woken me up to the my need to reach those people who I don't see the consequences of what I care about. Okay. It's a good point. James, I haven't asked you if the media engages in information avoidance, do we? Uh, I was actually thinking what the caller said and some of those points are. Um, certainly the media is looking for information um, to tell their story. You brought up a point earlier about the confirmation bias, and I certainly we all engage in the confirmation bias, tendency to seek out information consistent with our beliefs, and the media is going to do that as well. And it can occur for a variety of reasons. I like to think of us as kind of like uh, using the analogy of we're like naive scientists and we're testing our hypotheses. And uh, scientists are usually very good at it. They have hypotheses. They conduct experiments. But for ourselves, we might go to the refrigerator and say, okay, is that food good? Can I eat that or not? And then you conduct some little kind of your own little experiments, smell it, what have you, and decide it is you can eat it. But when it comes to beliefs ourselves or that the media might have, uh, we're not particularly good scientists. And we tend to seek out information that confirms our existing beliefs rather than information that might disconfirm it. Okay, we're having a conversation tonight on Indivisible about fake news and its effect on democracy. We need a certain amount of consensus and cohesion for democracy to work. And that's our conversation tonight. We're going to talk about now what to do about it. Stay with us. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Indivisible, and tonight a conversation about the consequences of fake news and misinformation on our democracy. What happens when we can't build consensus because we can't agree on essential facts? Paul says on Twitter, we've had fake news since the penny dreadfuls of the revolution. The question should be about an educated populace 
we fail there. What do you have to say about this? Busy phone lines. Hope you can get in 844-745-8255. It's 844-745-TALK. Or find me on Twitter at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R, as in Minnesota Public Radio, and you can use the hashtag Indivisible Radio. James, um, what do we do about it? What do we, how do we start to resolve this? I feel like we have to give listeners some hope on this tonight. What's the well, solution? Well, I think the first, I think there are several solutions or potential solutions here. I think first we need to recognize why does this happen? And uh, certainly sometimes we're just motivated to believe certain things uh, because we have some skin in the game. It, we, our wealth or our income is built on these beliefs uh, or these are very cherished beliefs that are important to us and we don't want to part with those cherished beliefs. Uh, or, you know, and that certainly can lead to this information avoidance. And so if we can just address the causes in some way or the mechanisms by which people do it. So people avoid information. Well, how can we make people more receptive to information? People show this uh, confirmation bias. Well, how can we counter that confirmation bias? So these are certainly starts of how we can approach this problem. Hurry, part of the reason that, that I really wanted to talk to you was I think the way you present information, we know the way you know John Stewart does, the way Stephen Colbert does, you use a lot of humor. And it seems that, and I know there's been some research on this, that people are more receptive to information they might not want to believe if it comes with a pretty big dose of humor. What, what's your experience with that? I mean, yeah, but like it's like taking uh, sugar with the medicine, right? Like that's – sugar's not good for you. Like it's, it's productive in that, uh, in that moment. But, the, you know, like I love what I do. I'm glad that I can contribute to a larger conversation. But again, like I was saying earlier, I shouldn't be – the main source of, you know, I mean, I'm supposed to be taking information that we know and playing with it to present an argument. That's not the same thing as, as reporting. I mean, that's a, we talk a lot about stories. I think that's a big part of it. A story is different than a report. A story is something you're constructing. There is a narrative there. A report is here's the information we know, the end. But the thing is, you have a 24-hour news cycle. There is a need for new, what is new right now, what is interesting. So they're not going to focus on world stories because the world, you know, our, our news is just like one or two or three stories a day. There should, it's a privilege to say that it's a slow news day. <laughs> you know, that's ridiculous. So, again, like I think it, it, it's – it shouldn't come down to a performer. News shouldn't be like – like, are you excited about it? Does it make you happy? You're an adult. <laughs> I don't need to make you happy. It's the news. Things are happening in the world. Uh, uh, let me take a call here from Martina in Indiana. Hey, Martina. Hi. Thanks so much for waiting. Hello. Hi. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Are you from a city in Indiana or a smaller town? Uh, a smaller town um, close to Louisville, Kentucky. Okay. Uh, I'm a conservative, uh, and I can tell you one of the things that – um, highlights to me um, the distrust of the media. And by the way, I do listen to NPR on my commute. Um, I, I do enjoy listening, but I can tell you I do get frustrated from time to time on the reporting because of the selective nature that tends to want to present a point of view. It almost feels like this is what you all want the listener to come to the conclusion of. Two examples that I can think of, um, one would be in a republic, the minority is supposed to be protected. And so when Republicans were in the minority 
it was obstructionism and, you know, they're just they're just obstructing progress. But now that it's reversed, now they're heroes for obstructing what might happen if the Republican agenda were to succeed. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the other example that I can point to is the example of deportations. Obama was the (laughs) he, he deported more than any other president at a faster rate. And yet the media was silent on that issue the entire time he was president. And now Trump comes in and it's all about immigration and what he's going to do. But they completely ignored Obama's record on it. Uh, Martina, I do want to tell you that often when we have done shows about deportation and immigration, I have noted what you've just said about President Obama's policies and asked our guests about it. It's on the record. You can find it in previous shows. But I take your point. And and James, I, I want to ask about, you know, what I hear from Martina saying is I'm trying to go to other sources, but I think I'm hearing bias. Um, what does she do with that? How do we deal with that? How do we understand that better? Uh, well, certainly any media source is going to have some bias. Just we're we're all biased. It's just part of being a human being is that we see things through our from our own perspectives, from our rose colored glasses. And uh, we just have to live with that, and we have to recognize the bias in ourselves, but also be aware that, well, others may be biased, and they may not be intentionally biased. Certainly, we're not intentionally biased in how we evaluate information, but just be aware of it. Uh, Okay, but I I was going to say, so if you've identified that in yourselves, and you say we we all possess that, then let's come back to that question that we started with, which is, so how do you, what do you do about it? And how do you catch yourself from falling into that confirmation bias, information avoidance trap? Yeah, well, that's a difficult question. There's, uh, um, and I think whew, we can do several things there. Um, I think that one strategy we can do is um, as we talk to other people, we can try to understand their perspective and see how they see the world. So what are your callers made the point earlier that um, she tries to listen to other news, but that's really hard. I mean, hearing perspectives that are different from yours, that's threatening. That doesn't feel good. It, it, and since it's challenging because it suggests your own view is wrong, and nobody wants to believe that about ourselves. So I recognize the difficulty of it, and then it becomes, well, how do we go about it? How do we cross that bridge? And I think it's reaching out and saying, okay, let me try to understand what's going on. Let me try to be, uh, take the perspective of someone else. And then if I can understand where they're, they're coming from, then maybe we can find some common ground. You know, I, I totally – Go uh, ahead. I mean I, I, I totally agree with that. There's also – I mean what you find biased is also biased, right? Like you, <laughs> exactly. The Probably only so. way to figure that out is to talk to enough people, be uncomfortable, figure out where their issues are. And then maybe you can question your own biases. Like maybe that isn't biased. That's a truth I just couldn't see before. You know, I've been watching the video of these uh, town hall meetings, and there's so much anger, and there's a lot of shouting. And, you know, James, hurry, I, it does not look like we are ready yet to, to, you know, quiet enough to have that conversation where you're hearing or understanding the other person's point of view. Hurry, what, what would you say? I mean, there's a difference between a a protest and a a critical conversation. There's a time and place for both. I mean, honestly, that those town halls, 
I don't think you can really have town halls right now. Like this is a moment to say I disagree with this and make sure people know. I mean I think it's also hard to have a discussion with somebody who has power and makes choices, right? You have to – if you're going to have a, a non-biased and, or a thoughtful conversation, it can't be for, with somebody who can give or take something from you. Like that's obviously not going to be the way it is. So I, I don't think those town halls are really the most effective. What do you think, James, as far as whether it's just too soon? Uh, and that sounds weird to say because I think we've been shouting at each other for you know, some time now, long before well, the election. And I think we've certainly lost some civility in these matters. I think what I find bothersome about uh, these shouting matches at Town Hall, these, in a sense, attempts to drown each other out so that the other person's view is not even heard, I mean, that, in a sense, represents an attempt to control the information, to control the speech, to, in a sense, avoid some information. If I don't allow you to speak, uh, if your information can't get out there, then I'm suddenly not exposed to anything that's objectionable. And I can also regulate the extent to which other people are exposed to information that I personally found objectionable. And it's difficult. I I agree with James. However, I think in the situation of of holding your representative accountable, you know, that's not just a – it's not a real town hall. You have cameras there. There's prepared statements. They're they're rarely really honest, right? It's an opportunity for the politician. If that was the case in a real genuine setting for conversation, I would completely agree. But in those town hall settings, they're for show. And that's true. I don't know. I, you know, I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, I, I do think it's a – are you saying, Hurry, that you think the politician is there for show? Because – No, everyone's there for show. Once there are cameras, once it's being recorded, once it's being tracked, you know, immediately it's about we have to make a public statement. I have to make sure I make these statements and I'm careful about these statements. Yeah. It's no longer a real conversation, which, you know, is obviously more difficult in an era where everyone can record anything. But like it, from the get-go, you know this is a recorded thing. This isn't a thing where I'm talking to my congressman with a small group. It is clearly staged. Like it, it, the genuineness of the moment, if it's not there, it's going to turn into a public spectacle. Uh, okay, that's to, what it was meant to be. You know, I watched the I watched the town hall with uh, the Senate uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell in Kentucky, and a woman stood up and said, uh, clearly worried about what was going to happen with the Affordable Care Act, and said, "What about these coal miners? Those jobs aren't coming back." I think she, yes, she was aware that the cameras were rolling. But I also think what she was saying was something that was truly worrying for her and that there was genuine anguish about this. Fair, but she wasn't going to have a long conversation about it in that play. I mean, it, the, the victory for her is I got this out. She's not going to get an answer right there. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. that is that is again, even her saying it, that's that's the, the plus for her and for those for those issues. So in uh, some sense, it's a, an opportunity to s- speak, but not to listen. Yeah. And there's a lot so of that precious going on, little right? listening going on. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Uh, call here from Chet in South Georgia. Hi, Chet. Thanks for waiting. Hi. 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 Thanks. Uh, what are you thinking about? Well, boy, you've touched on a lot of stuff. But um, <laughs> I love the analogy of the the sugar with the medicine. That's kind of what I. Oh, I actually just left dinner with friends and. We got into a political discussion, unfortunately, and uh, <laughs> we, we talked about the Sunday news programs. And some, you know, would not watch CNN. Some would not watch Fox. And I told them I watch everything. I have to DVR some because they're on at the same time. But I watch every 
news program that I can find. And I, my, what I told them is it's basically like going to the gym, no pain, no gain. So it kind of fits <laughs> the, the sugar medicine thing. Um, and, and that's truly how I look at it. And I learned something from shows I don't – sometimes it's hard to watch them, but you, you just have to, to do that. So, Chet, do you uh, – having had this experience with your friends, um, do you feel like – so, you know, views were exchanged and something was learned because we ju- we just said among the three of us, we don't think people are really ready to have those differing conversations. Did you have one of those? You know, yeah, you- we, yeah, we we actually do meet pretty frequently. And, you know, politics has, has not been a, a main subject until the last, you know, few months, year. And 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 on a couple of occasions, we've actually had to just say, "Okay, it, we've got to stop because it, it just got too contentious." I mean, it got serious. Uh, some people would stand up and say, "Well, I'm, you know, if we keep on, I'm going to leave." And we're friends. You huh. know, yeah. it, it's pretty tough. James, maybe we and, all want like to hang out with Chet. From, we've got <laughs> we've got people from both sides, and and you know, it, it's it's uh, sometimes I don't understand how somebody can think like that, and I try and put myself in their shoes and uh, sometimes I can't I still can't figure it out so good call thanks thanks very much you were going to say James or hurry but putting yourself in their shoes I mean that is really a, 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 an excellent thing to do because you're taking their perspective and I might suggest another thing to do would be to try to find some sort of common ground and the common ground is well what do we all agree on we all want to feel safe we all want to be healthy how can we achieve that and we may have different perspectives on how to go about it, but if we can agree there that we all want these same fundamental things, then perhaps we can move forward and find some agreeable solution to everyone. You know, and Harry, also, go so ahead. Many, so, sorry. so many of these conversations, I mean, the tone is set by whoever, like whether it's a teacher or your boss or a leader, that's how the tone is set. So you can't insult everybody. And so, you know, it, it doesn't help when you have a president that has insulted so many different people. Then you, you, how can you expect nuanced conversations after that? Like when you're when you're healing from something or when you're angry, you've lost the ability to really hear the other side because you just keep thinking about that. You know, I, I was thinking about our, our caller earlier who said um, that he hears too many voices from the coasts. I think he put it, and not enough voices from the people who would actually be affected. You know, Hurry, that is a way to build the kind of empathy that I think James is talking about. I feel we are so far from that at the moment. But the media also has to take some responsibility for this. Are you just saying that because you're in Minneapolis? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, busted. (laughs) That's right. Um, But but what do you think of that? I think there's a a James, did you want to say yeah, I, I I have to say I've been there. Uh, several years ago, I was living in Europe and during the Gulf War and speaking with people in, in Germany and Belgium, they said, how can – why are the American people putting up with this? We, don't you see what's on the news? And I go, we're not getting this kind of news on television in the United States. We don't get this kind of imagery. If we did, I think things would be quite differently. So there certainly is um, filtering going on in terms of the kind of media that's there. 
I'll also say as somebody who grew up in Queens, New York, you know, in New York City, I think everybody imagines, of, of course, this liberal bubble. But when you grow up in Queens, it's it's diverse in every way that you can have diversity, but like racially, culturally, but also politically. Like I grew up with tons of kids who were conservative, whose parents were conservative, but we could still have some discussion because we, we it wasn't like we we understood each other was coming from a very different place. We grew up with this great diversity. I don't think it helps when there's such a dis, uh, you, when, when you talk about immigrants a certain way, when you talk about different racial groups or women or gay people a certain way, when, when it doesn't feel inclusive, how are you expected to have a conversation that's also inclusive of all uh, political points of view? I mean, I think that's all part of it. Everyone has to feel comfortable when we're having the discussion. Call here from Ken in Virginia. Hi, Ken. I, I've only got a couple minutes left, but I really wanted to hear from you. Ah, thank you. They told me to keep it brief. <laughs> I wanted to thank all of you at NPR for uh, convincing me to vote for Trump. I'm normally conservative, uh-huh. but I was not impressed with Trump. I'm from New York, and there are a lot of people like him in New York, and I'm not very impressed with any of them. But <laughs> NPR convinced me, and it did by doing two things, very consistently, but two examples. One of them is the constant referral to presidential candidate Trump uh, proposing a ban on Muslim immigration. It was the lead-in to every news story on NPR for the three weeks prior to the uh, election. And uh, I never heard him propose that. I, I heard things about terrorists and uh, items like that, but I never heard him Ken, propose I got about a minute if you want to give your second example. Okay, I'll, I will. The Diane Rehm Show, she was interviewing a guy from the New York Times. His comment, some young guy called in saying something constructive about illegal immigration, and the Times representative lost it. He said, now you see how crazy this election has gotten with Trump in it? People like that, before this election, wouldn't have even gotten on the air, and here he is talking to us now. Ken, I appreciate the call, and let's remember, you got onto public radio here to say that. Good to talk to you. Hurry, James, thank you very much. Really appreciate the insight and the benefit of your experience. This is Indivisible. I'm Carrie Miller. You're hearing it tonight from Minnesota Public Radio, but you can hear it weeknights Monday through Thursday. Listen in on Monday. Good conversation about how the United States is seen from outside of our borders. This is Indivisible. If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.